Black Coffee is a podcast hosted by Kari Frazier and Frida Sampson Weekly. Weekly, Frida and Kari welcome guests to discuss the rich history of Black leadership, entrepreneurship, artistry, and social justice. Black Coffee is recorded before a live audience every Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern at Pause, located at 736 Luthrope, Detroit, Michigan, 48202. Subscribe on Apple iTunes or Google Play to the Black Coffee Podcast and don't miss the history of Black Detroit. All right, we are back again here in the Samson Institute, uh, gearing up for what's going to honor the legacy of Reverend Sampson soon, May 19th. Uh, you can join many, many people. Uh, I'm going to be one of those people in effect. And uh, Reverend Jeremiah Wright will be there. And so many other people from Detroit. My Reynolds, my cousin will be there. And obviously Frida Sampson, the namesake of Reverend Sampson will be there. And the book covering the life of Reverend Sampson will be in full effect. All for you to come be a part of this experience. It's an all day event. Uh, May 19th, 50 bucks, but you're going to get, uh, what do the people get, Frida? You get some awesomeness. You will not only get continental breakfast and lunch, but you will get to hear the right Reverend uh, Jeremiah Wright. You'll get to hear uh, Reverend Dr. Freddie Haynes and Reverend Dr. Frank Thomas, and then we'll have workshops and um, opportunities to get Reverend uh, Thomas's new book. And as Kari's already said, and thank you for that. Uh, there is, there will be the unveiling of the, I think I said something, a book about my father, the Reverend Dr. Frederick G. Sampson, where we'll be able to immerse ourselves in his life through images and through his writings and through testimonies and reflections from his peers and sons and daughters. So it's going to be a good time. Mm -hmm. And I, I've looked through a little bit of the book thus far. Uh, I was one of those people in the brain trust of the, of the read through different oh, yeah. sections. It's very interesting. Um, Covering the journey of Reverend Sampson, uh, how his life growing up in a definitely devout Christian household on the banks of, as they say, like, I guess, like a fun river town as before Las Vegas. It, it was like every state had a couple of towns where uh, where New Orleans was happening across the nation. And he grew up across the bank from one of those towns so it was very uh it already opens up very interesting uh for his offshoot of looking at people taking advantages and exploiting just all the pleasures of life but what can that bring to quality of life into his sermon so it's interesting interesting cool. good interesting good good it's a kari take <laughs> and as we talk about kari takes we have a novelist a writer uh, someone that reviews books, uh, someone that is a part of the history of what's happening when it comes to like writing in Detroit because he's connected to Sylvia and Sylvia is one of my good people. We need to get Sylvia on here as well. Into Black Coffee, Walter O'Brien. Mr. O'Brien, how are you today? Great, great, great to be here. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. All right. So um, definitely the feel, um, the, the essence of, of telling stories, uh, you just help by giving a workshop on telling stories. So before we even get into your life, let's get into that. What's what storytelling for you and uh, what makes a story worth being told? Well, I, I just like to run my mouth. You know, that, it's, <laughs> it's pretty simple. I, when when I was a child, there was a man that lived next to me. I, I called him my cultural father. I had two fathers. I had a <laughs> father at home 
And then I had my cultural father next door. His name was Willard Simmons. He was the, uh, I found out after his death, he was the first black lineman at uh, Bell Telephone. But, you know, he would always lean on the fence, and he wouldn't let you get away until he told you these little anecdotes about his life. And I'm guilty. I do the same thing now. You know, I just love to run my mouth. And okay. it's it's a direct result of my association with my neighbor. You know, I grew up in Kona Gardens, and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we had a pretty stable neighborhood. Mm -hmm. You know, my parents moved there in the 50s, and, uh, you know, I dealt with this man right up until he died, uh, probably... Oh, gosh, that had to be in the early 80s. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. So you, you went into one of our very next questions. We always open up with what neighborhood did you live in? But I'm very interested in this guy that was a lineman now. So, Mr. Simmons, what were some of the stories that he was telling and where was he from? You know, I really can't. I really don't know if I should discuss a lot of these stories <laughs> because they were they're always very manly themes. But, you know, he was the he was the first person that introduced uh, my brothers and I to pizza, huh. you know, because huh. back in the day there were only three or four places. You know, I'm I'm going to apply for Medicare this year, so that'll tell you how old I am. Okay, you know, there there were only three or four places around town where you could buy pizza, and he would go to Highland Park, and he'd come back with this used pizza, and he'd come over to the house, and you know, my father really wasn't happy about it, but he would give me my brothers and I a slice, mm -hmm. and this was oh, this had to be in the early early sixties. You can't win favor with children by giving pizza. I've never seen you, that scenario not work. You, you can win favor with adults by giving That's pizza. That's exactly right. Who is that with the pizza? <laughs> is that a pizza Mr. Box? Simmons, please share share your your illustrious tales of uh, of you and women. <laughs> So, yeah, he, you know, he was he was a very worldly man. Uh, you know, most of the most of the men of his generation worked at uh, Ford Motor, and he told me that when he came to Detroit, he was from Ohio. Uh, he went to the uh, foundry out in Dearborn, and he said that when they opened those doors, it looked like the gates of hell. Mm. So he he refused to go there, and he went to Bell Telephone instead, and that's how he became. Uh, you know the first black lineman and, ain't and that something that so like uh like that was putting up telephone lines yeah yes so climbing the pole putting up telephone lines. yes okay interesting one one day i walked you know I, I pulled up in my car and he was standing up on the top rung of a 10-foot ladder mm -hmm. you know just like it was a chair you know like it was a floor mm -hmm. and i i can't repeat what he said but you know he <laughs> <laughs> he made reference to himself to being a bird <laughs> Hilarious. Okay, so your family, along with uh, your your initial family, your mother and father, where where are they both from, and when did they make their uh, where? How, why did they come to Detroit? Well, my father was from Detroit. He, oh, was, born he was born here. here. Yes. Okay, so let's let's trace back further. Then, okay, his family were they? Uh, were, was your grandfather and grandmother? Are they from Detroit? No, no, my grandfather was from India, and. Uh, he came here probably at the turn of century and mm. met my grandmother. My grandmother passed when I was a child. I know very little about that side of the family. Mm. Uh, my mother's side of the family was from Alabama, Sylacauga, Alabama. Okay, so India, like Gandhi, India? Yes. Okay. All right. So that is very unique. What led him? You, you said you know a little bit. Do you even know what led him from India to, to Detroit? I, I know they have a case system there. You know, and right, so I, right. I I believe that he was at the lower rung okay. of the case system, mm -hmm. and he got away just to you know just to have more freedom. Okay, okay. 
so when you make reference to your grandmother, uh, what what was her ethnic background? My your paternal my paternal grandmother was Black African. Oh, okay, okay, very. Good. I know that had to be a that very unique interracial uh, relationship at the turn of the century. 1900 just to see an Indian man black woman that's African black woman yeah well I found out uh, you know I worked for the state of Michigan for 30 years I worked for the disability program I was one of those bad old folks that decided who who, who got SSI and who didn't oh wow and a case came across uh, my desk and this woman had my same last name huh. I find out from talking to her that my grandfather actually had two families Oh, that that happened often back in the like, day. It was yeah. like regular Facebook. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Facebook yeah. was not uh, a lot around back then. It was <laughs> right. Like, so uh, you could do that covert. You know, it's like a guy, a guy have a whole other family around the corner. <laughs> that 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 does seem like it was very much commonplace in a certain time in our history. It's not even surprising as as it used to be when I first started hearing about it. Mm -hmm. I'm like, what? A second family? Are you kidding? And now mm -hmm. I'm hearing the story told over and over again. Absolutely. You know, my father's name was Robert, but there was a there was another Robert. And, uh, you know, because this woman's telling me the same story that my mother had told me about my father's family because my you know, my grandfather died when he was 39. He, he hmm. died shortly after my father was born. Wow. So we, we knew very little about him. And then I was probably 9 or 10 when my grandmother passed away. Hmm. And I actually confronted uh, my, my last living aunt on my father's side about this. And, you know, she wouldn't acknowledge it, but her eyes got as big as saucers. <laughs> so I knew that she knew. Mm -hmm. You know, and my, mm -hmm. my mother found out because, you know, at, you know back in the 40s, you know, Detroit, Black Detroit was, uh, you know, it was a, it was a pretty uh, cohesive community, and mm -hmm. she had heard these things, but mm -hmm. she, I really, she really didn't know about it until I confirmed it for her. You yeah. know, yeah, you didn't know. even change the last name either. So right. No. Like, it no. wasn't like O'Brien, then O'Brien. <laughs> but you know, when you think about it, we're talking a segregated community, and and Detroit certainly was profoundly segregated during that era. I mean, you had like very few options to go to and yet we had those dynamics occurring they had to be like around the corner from each other like family was on, yeah. on one street and right. family b was uh -huh. on, right. uh, around the corner yeah just like, amazing they you know my father grew up in black bottom and you know we attended uh our grandmother's church probably up until you know they uh ramrod uh, i-75 through there mm -hmm. what, what church, church? Yeah, that man, I was I was a child. Okay, I've, I've been this. I, I knew they were Pentecostal. That's that's as much as I can tell you. My mother was Methodist and my father was Pentecostal. Mm. So we would we would float between. Actually, we ended up at a interdenominational church, uh, People's Community on Woodward. Of course, wow. that that was kind of like the compromise. But mm. you know, when we went to the Pentecostal church, we'd be there all day. Yes, that's what. Uh, that's probably what was going down. So you were probably leaning on that Methodist as a child, like. <laughs> Well, you know, I, I'm, I'm uh, actually the third generation of Walter. My, my younger brother's a minister, Mark O'Brien, uh, but the other, the other ministers, my grandfather and my uncle, were both named Walter. You know, I was, oh. I was the, uh, I was the, the Walter intended. that didn't preach. Yeah. Well, you know, I just, I just had to move in a different path. You know, I'm you tell not. stories. It's kind of the same thing. <laughs> yes, <laughs> a different. Yes, from a yes. different background. Of, of Sharon's yeah. interpretations. Yeah. And then let's, uh, your storytelling. Now, in, in school, were you an avid reader and writer? What Were you drawn to that when you were younger? 
Reading, yeah, you know, um, I read a lot when I was a child. You know, I'd, I'd be in the basement with a book. You know, um, when I was 12, I got a subscription to Newsweek. You know, I'd read the paper from, you know, from actually from the front cover to the back cover. You know, I was just a voracious reader. You know, this was back in the day when there were like three television stations. Right. And, uh, you know, the only thing exciting on, on Saturday night was like hockey. You know, there's not too many men of my generation that will deny that they didn't watch hockey. In fact, I was watching it the other night. Mm -hmm. um, because it was just it just wasn't much to do you know you you could read or you could watch tv mm -hmm. and you know i wasn't the uh, the best kid so a lot of times i didn't get to watch television at night okay. so mm, got it so i ended up uh, reading it, it right. was a gateway to you becoming a writer yeah yeah ain't that something i the storytelling so i'm fa i'm fascinated with storytelling i love storytellers and I, and i mean with the greatest love respect and admiration that those in ministry are storytellers because that's really that's the compelling kind of twist to really captivate people's attention and and get them to engage in a deeper way. You know, your father was the keynote speaker at my 20-year uh, high school reunion really? back in 1992. Yeah, and I was the president of my class, so we sat at the same table and we really had a really good discussion. You know, I, it's you know it's one of the few it's one of the things that you don't forget in your life. You know. Um, in, in my life, men of a certain age have always, black men of a certain age have always been very impressive mm -hmm. uh, to me. And he physically resembled my father. Hmm. So, you know, we had, you yeah. know, we had a lot. We just clicked. That's awesome. I immediately. Yeah, well, it yeah. was. It was it was quite a thrill. That's awesome. I, what, I'm sorry, do ahead. you remember any of the address? Because when you talk about storytellers, yeah, your dad was. The thing that, it's no telling what he would have been talking about because I think he had like a presence of mind to deliver whatever he was going to talk about, but also, uh, depending upon the temperature of the room, what was happening in the world, what was happening in the community, like it could shift what he was, you know, sure. what he delivered. The, the thing that I remember uh, from that evening um, was that he had repeated something I had said to him at the table. Oh wow! You know, okay. uh, other than other than that, you know, uh, it wasn't the best evening in the world because you know I was a president of the class and they had spelled my name wrong on the uh, on the program and you know I just wasn't happy to be there. <laughs> so, so he kind of he kind of made the evening for me. You know, people want my name to be I N, but I'm not Irish. You know, uh -huh. as I just explained to you, mm -hmm. you know, there's uh -huh. there's nothing Irish about me, mm -hmm. and I believe they just gave my grandfather a name when he came through immigration. Mm. Hmm. You know, yeah, because I was wondering how did you, but I guess that was just what you know what stuck. Mm. You know, the same way like in a lot of ways, just us as black people were given names too. Yeah, so, absolutely. You know, um, and uh, your father and your mother, what were they doing uh, as you were growing up? What was their life's work, and uh, what were their interests? Both my parents worked at Ford Motor. Uh, my father was the uh, first black union official at uh, Highland Park. So we got my mother a job. My mother was okay. a sewing machine operator. My father was a was a painter. So you know, I grew up. I had the luxury of having a two you know two family uh, two parent income. That was a unique time to be a woman, and working at that time when you had a man that probably earned like that. So who's was that? Your mom pushing the work, or was that your dad saying like, "Hey, you can get a job too"? Like what what was it? No, it was my father saying, "You will work." Oh really? Like, yeah. Oh, my mother told me this. Uh, you know, as we, you know, my mother and I became friends. You know, as we got older, mm 
Mm-hmm. And she told me one day, you like, your father made me get a job. And I'm happy that he did that because, you know, as, as uh, folks were dying off, you know, on the block, and, you know, she was one of the few women that was independent. She mm-hmm. had her own pension. Okay, Mm. she had her, you know, she had her own money. Mm -hmm. She didn't have to wait for some man to die to give her things. And that that's what separated her from a lot of the folks that that we, you know, we grew up with when I was a child. So when you say that, that's that has to be like um, what that has to be at the time. Just thinking it through. That's such against the, the, the temperature of. Two things. A lot of men didn't want a woman working. <laughs> That's one thing. And two, um, I'm sure most of your mom's friends and, and your aunties were probably homemaking. Well, my aunt, uh, my my mother actually followed her younger sister here from Alabama, and her husband was a contractor. Mm-hmm. So he worked like uh, what March through October. And at some point, yeah, he he had her get a job at Chrysler. She worked at Chrysler as well. You know, so that was what I knew growing up, work. So your family was really very forward-thinking in terms of kind of that that gender equality, at least from the perspective of uh, everybody in the household participating. Oh, absolutely. You know, we didn't get allowance. We worked. You know, we earned all the money that that we brought in. Wow, you didn't get an allowance? Oh, no. Well, well, I mean, I hear people talk about that, and and I don't I don't really know what that is. You know, we we cut grass, we shovel snow, you know, we did think we washed cars, mm-hmm. and that's how we brought our money. And you know, when I was twelve, I had a paper route. Mm-hmm. I started working full time when I was sixteen. I sold clothing, huh. and that was really the motivation for me to go to college because you know, like I'm approaching uh, graduation, and I'm like, you know, if I don't go away. I'm going to be working for the rest of my life. Mm. Huh. So I went away to college. Where'd you go? Uh, Michigan State. And did you love it? Oh, oh, it was it was the best experience of my adult life. What Absolutely. Ma- what made it so so good? Because it was such a novel environment. You know, I are you guys East Siders or West Siders? West Side. West Side. I grew up I grew up in Coney Gardens. You know, mm-hmm. and and there, if you soft, you lost. Mm. And 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 fortunately, I've been six feet tall since I was twelve. Mm-hmm. And my old, I have an older brother who's six years older than me, and he thought he was Don King. Mm-hmm. So I had to have a fight before I went home, and losing wasn't an option. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's all I did. From you know, I was a gladiator. Okay. Okay. Yeah. You know, there were there were there were three guys in Coney Gardens. There were guys that when you saw them, you walked across the street. You crossed, or there were guys who. You had beat up so many of them that you didn't have to walk across the street, or you would have got across the street. <laughs> Hilarious. <laughs> there, there were three guys. You know, my friends and I were big enough and tough enough to have beaten up enough of the bullies where we didn't have to cross the street. Wow. And then that uh, that era, that Coney Gardens, is my commu- my family I and mean, a lot of my friends are like in and around that community. You know, Persian, um, the Doughboy culture that's over there. Definitely, uh, it it exists now. I'm actually very upset with uh, the the Detroit news story that's uh, that's like death by Instagram that's covering like the the East Side Blood gang that's like in that community because it's just it it misses the context of that neighborhood that's existed over and beyond, and it also doesn't 
talk about the other dynamics that create that idea and that ideology. But um, but that community is also big in sports too. And as tall as you are, like Persians basketball team's legacy like really picks up from the 60s through i would say through the 90s and kind of picks up a little bit in the 2000s well you know uh, i was there when we won our first uh basketball class H, uh state championship and that's actually why i went to michigan state because the final was at uh jenison field house against pontiac northern mm-hmm. and i'm standing in the middle of the court and i looked around I'm like i'm gonna go to school here Hmm. So foolish me, it was the only place I applied to go to school. This uh-huh. was that was 1970, and then I I went there in uh, 1972. Uh, in terms of sports, you know, uh, Will Robinson, uh, who finally worked for the, ended up with the Pistons, was the mm-hmm. a- athletic director. Mm-hmm. First day of school, I'm walking through school, and I was accosted by five or six of his uh, athletes. So Rob is sitting at a table with you know a pencil in his hand, and they took me up to the gym and they placed me right in front of the, his table. And he looked up from his, and he stuck his pencil up in my face and he's like, fat mofo, you gonna play football, sign right here. Huh. And that's how he recruited athletes. You didn't have a choice. <laughs> you know, you, you just didn't have a choice. What are you gonna tell him, no? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, anybody that, you know, didn't go along with his program, you had to deal with his guys, mm. with his scholar, you know, with his uh, his starting athletes. Now, but his starting athletes included like a legacy of so many people that were given so many more opportunities than a lot of other people. So like uh, with that program and with that approach, um, you know, the 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 I guess like the the opportunity to leave Conant Gardens or the, um, you know, the Sojourner Truth Homes or any of those communities in and around Pershing were created too. So, and, uh, and at Michigan State, did, were, you, were you into athletic, were you playing sports or were you, were you just attending Michigan State? No, you know, the, unfortunately our football coach was a, was a class A bigot, you know, mm-hmm. and, and uh, most of the most of the folks that had prominent positions, you know, we had, you know, a school that was predominantly black, but we had a white quarterback, mm-hmm. all the guys on the baseball. He also coached the baseball team, so all the, all the guys from the baseball team were starters. He didn't really give allowed a lot of scholarships to, uh, you know, mm-hmm. to the black guys, unless they were just extremely, you know, mm-hmm. gifted. Like Paul Seals uh, went, to, uh, went to the NFL, and uh, Ralph uh, Simpson went to the ABA and so did Spencer Haywood. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rob left us and he went to, I think, Illinois State. So mm-hmm. he took some of the guys with him. He took Bubba Hawkins, who became an NBA star, and Daryl Jeter and a few guys like that. So those were the folks that had opportunities, the ones that were closest to us. Mm-hmm. Um, I was... I went to Michigan State at a time when they thought it was better to put us in college than to incarcerate us. There were like 100 kids from Cass Tech. There were at least 20, 25 folks from uh, Pershing. And we were well represented with the city. We had, a, we had a really good community at Michigan State. There were like almost 2,000 black folks up there mm-hmm. you know, when I was a freshman. 
So it was a really comfortable environment. I was just up there for the uh, Black Celebratory uh, this past weekend, and uh, we were riding around campus, and you just don't see that type of unity any longer, you know, because, you know, this, this is, I, I, I accuse this generation of, the, of being the generation that, you know, they, they're quick to say, well, I don't see color. You know, but everybody else does. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. and we went there when a time when we had our own little study halls, and they were really trying very hard. You know, Michigan State has a legacy of of, of black recruitment. Mm -hmm. You know, even to this day, they're not a, a recruiting as aggressively as they have in the past. But it was a really big thing in the '60s and '70s, and I'm a reflection of that. Hmm. Okay, so after college, where where does your journey take you? You know, I um, I worked for the, I went back to selling clothing right on Seven Mile in Conant. When I first came out of college, before I left, I took a civil service test. But you know, this was right at the beginning of a, of so-called affirmative action. And the way the state played affirmative action, they would offer you a job, uh, but there were very very limited opportunities. Like when I took my first civil service test. I fell in the first band, and the first band almost guaranteed you a job, but I didn't get a call. Okay, if you got from 100 to 90, you were in the first band, you were eligible for a job. I didn't get a call. So I retook the test, and I got an 89, then I started getting calls. But instead of uh, being offered jobs in Wayne, Oakland, Macomb, Washtenaw, Monroe County, they offered me a job in Branch County. And that's like in southeastern, southwestern Michigan. Okay. So, I, so that's like near Benton Harbor. How far away from Benton Harbor is that? It's uh, probably it's probably 60, 70, maybe almost 100 miles from Benton Even Harbor. Even from Benton Harbor? Yeah, okay. it's, it's right near the Ohio-Indiana border. It's like 20 okay. miles north of, you know, you go... You go 20 miles uh, east and you're in Ohio. You go 20 miles west and you're in Indiana. Okay. So I got the job. You know, I beat out like 30 people for this job. And after I had been, and I was the first, I was my, I was my own demographic. I was the only black college-educated male under 30 in the county. Oh, my God. Okay. Because that's, that's how things were. But it, it actually worked out for me because I was in a non-competitive environment. Okay, and contrary to what people want to believe, the, the community really just welcomed me. Okay, they took me in because I wasn't a threat to anybody. You know, farmers are pretty wealthy. Most of the people that I worked with were folks that own huge tracts of land and they sold, you know, industrial corn to like Purina and Kellogg and Post, and they would work at the state home where I worked to pay their taxes every year. Okay. So it was it was really a different kind of thing. You know, I, I I actually lived in Battle Creek the first year, but but the the racial hostility was so bad in Battle Creek, I actually moved to Coldwater, and my life changed. You know, I was down there for three years, and people were just superb to me. After I found housing, I had a little trouble finding housing, mm -hmm. but after I found a place to live, you know, things just really opened up. Uh, but I missed my own folks. You know, all all brothers down there had uh, white families because most of the girls got married when they were 18 years old, and by the time they were in their 30s, they were getting divorced, and they had children, so these brothers would come and they would adopt the entire family. 
And I knew if I got involved with, uh, with one of them because my friends that I played basketball with, they're like, what's the matter? You don't like white women? And I'm like, well, I know that these are small town girls and if, I'm, if, if I get involved with one, I'll be here forever. And I won't be there forever, okay? I was there for a little under five years. Huh. And then uh, I was fortunate enough to be able to come home. Okay. All right. So coming back home, what year is that when you made your, uh, when you came back to Detroit now with, uh, I guess some professional experience and, and life college educated. What, what year is this? 1983. 83. Okay. So this is full stride Coleman young, a lot of different things are happening in, in, Detroit, in Detroit. Uh, what do you remember most about arriving back to live in Detroit? Even though I know you bit visit, but living versus visiting is two totally, they're, they're two different temperatures. Man, I was like a lumberjack out of the woods. <laughs> yeah, I, I went to a lot of bars. That's, that's what I remember. And when I was in Coldwater, I bought um, a Mustang, a Boss 302. You know, mm-hmm. it was like the, it was like one of the high, first high production vehicles they had created in a very long time. And you know, Riding around Detroit, it was like riding around in a limousine. You know, mm-hmm. I'd, I'd be I'd ride past a bus stop, and and girls would literally like walk in traffic to try to get in the car with me. It was it was truly amazing. Wow. You know, because I you know growing up the way I grew up in Kona Gardens, you didn't try to get action from having a car. Mm-hmm. You know, that was that was almost kind of a a punk thing. You know, mm-hmm. but I come home and and really. Women were literally walking into traffic, you know, and so that was kind of a, that was kind of amazing, you know. Oh, give me a ride, sticking the thumb out, and all this kind of stuff. That seems crazy as ever. Oh, it was pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. So, and when you when you present and you think about things like that, like um, the 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 idea of like. Um, the idea of um, of of being back in Detroit in '83. What was your take on uh, not just, I guess, like the the nightlife of it, but what was happening in the city? Uh, what What do you remember most about just uh, the 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 businesses, the people, the community, the neighborhood? What stood out? Well, you know, Coleman Coleman Young was doing a, a lot of positive things in the city, um, and. People were responding to that. There were black businesses that you could go to. Um, there was just a, a very different vibe than you have nowadays. You know, there was there was no us versus them type of thing going on. You, you know, the only the only downside was that there was, you know, there was this was like the beginning of cocaine and crack cocaine. Mm-hmm. So you saw some of the effects of that. Um, when I was a teenager before I left the city, after the riot, there was an infusion of heroin in, in the town, mm-hmm. okay? But by the time I came back, then it was uh, crack cocaine. But it just, it, it wasn't pervasive, but it mm-hmm. was here. And it was something that you had to deal with. But again, there was, and in probably the early 70s, you know, there had been a really ferocious wave of Pan-Africanism Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and, uh, you know, we all gave ourselves African names and we wore dashikis. I didn't see as much of that 
by the 80s you know it was this more stylistic type of thing you know everybody had a suit and every and there was a lot of new music happening you know people were discovering Prince and uh, Rick James and stuff like that uh, Mojo was big I loved Mojo I have to tell you Mojo did an interview with my dad and you know nobody the thing that was so cool about Mojo is that no one knew what he looked like right, right, right. And apparently he was a regular customer at the shop <laughs> when I was open and I never knew it was him <laughs> yeah he's very uh, to himself yeah well there's yeah. even a mythology about that today you know on Facebook they, they post all these pictures you know I'd seen him a few times mm-hmm. and I'm like that's not Mojo you know, I, <laughs> and, and I'll, I'll pull up a picture and they're like that's, that couldn't be Mojo yeah that's Mojo you know, because nobody really knew what he looked like, right. but because he had this aura of mystique, you know, but and there was a lot of things happening musically in town that I liked. Um, you know, um, I guess there are like two kind of cultures. There's uh, folks that are in the techno and then their house heads. You know, house, house heads have kind of won out over the years, but techno was, was pretty big back there. You know, folks like Alan Ullman and... Uh, Oh, there's there's a couple guys even bigger than him because you know right down the boulevard, there's a studio, just on the mm-hmm. other side of yeah Woodward. with Transmat yeah, with, yeah. Uh, uh, Mike Banks and uh, you know they even have the uh, they have a techno museum in there yeah. you know where they highlight you know Kevin Saunderson and my good friend Derek May shout out Derek and Mike Banks and everything that happened with Juan Atkins and just that whole movement. Those, so are, that was, those are two names I couldn't remember. But, uh-huh. you know, Alan was on the radio at mm-hmm. WDET at night, and he would play a lot of good music. And he would mm-hmm. talk about uh, Derek May and and, uh, and Juan Atkins. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my nephew's a DJ, Wajid. Mm-hmm. Um, and he lived down at that studio. He actually lived there for a while. So that's how I got familiar with that. But music was, was a really big thing back mm-hmm. in the 80s, and there was a lot of stuff happening. You know, Detroit just had a, had a different kind of vibe back then. You know, people were very positive, you know, and I'm not really sure when when th- there was this shift. And, and let's talk about you as a writer. When did you start moving your pen? When did you go from just a reader and experience in life to saying, all right, I'm about to start writing some stories? I started writing when I was in, in uh, high school. I was about 17. 1718. Uh, I have a friend named Karen Leroy, and she was very instrumental in uh, getting me involved in the arts. You know, she just, she just kind of exposed me to the arts, mm-hmm. you know. And, uh, you know, uh, this was a time when folks like uh, Nikki Giovanni and Sonia Sanchez would come here to Detroit regularly mm-hmm. uh, because they would come down to Broadside Press and read poetry. Mm-hmm. You know, so we would go down there, and then there was a place on uh, Six Mile called the Ebo Cultural Center, and they'd have uh, live jazz. You know, you could see people like Farrell Saunders, and, uh, you know, just every weekend, hmm. you know. And, and so, you know, that, that just kind of uh, propelled me into writing and, and being motivated to write. So I started doing uh, poetry when I was 17. And then when I was in college, I took a class and we actually published some poetry. When I left college, I think it was probably, I'm gonna say 
the 90s before I got back into it, uh, hmm. I was actually the business manager for a poet. And when I saw how easy it was to publish a book, I just kind of assembled all the material that I'd had. I published my first book in 1993 or 94. What was the title of the book and was it just a collection of poems? And yeah, how many was, books have you published? Uh, yeah, that's another good question. To date, uh, three. Mm -hmm. Three. All poetry? No, I did uh, two poetry books and then uh, I was in, Chrysler did a thing that I was involved with and then my most recent book was published in January. Okay, it's a, it's a novel of fiction. Okay, and and the the poetry. Um, what what's the what's your take? Are are, are you uh, when you when you write poems? Is it more from the the creative scope? Is it more so from telling real life stories, like what you like to share? Uh, what's what's your voice as a poet? Well, you know, I'm obsessed with love. Mm -hmm. Okay, and I write I write a lot about love and. Uh, you know, okay, like love, like romance, or love, like I love my grandma, or I love society. <laughs> well, I, I got into a discussion with 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 somebody on Facebook recently. They were talking about common and you know his failings, his romantic failings, and I'm like, you know, well, well, people that that obsess over love like me and him, we just aren't really good at it. That seems that seems like a contradiction, though. <laughs> well, that's why we obsess over it, though. Okay. So, so in that quest of the holy grail of love do you do you find at this age that you're better at it than you were 20 years ago the obsession or the or the actual practice the i guess both, well, right, both. Yeah, <laughs> sure, but, but the practice is really where i was going yeah, with yeah. that <laughs> probably not <laughs> no no so I all would. that obsessing hasn't really moved the carrot <laughs> no no i've you know I'm, I'm too jaded for that you know um <laughs> You know, it, it's it's really good to kind of fantasize about about something like that. But uh, you know, at, at this point in time, the mechanics of it get really really tricky. You know, I meet I meet a lot of folks with baggage. Okay, mm. and and it's and and they're probably more jaded than I am. They're probably more hurt about things than I am. And so it's it's virtually impossible to do sometimes. You know, it's everybody wants to. To be in love everybody wants love but how many people truly truly find it you know and i i just i never i never found it to my satisfaction let me just put it like well, that let me ask let me ask this question then uh how much do you think uh the idea is is a concept and when we think about love is like we're romanticizing something that we've been socialized to believe in versus the 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 practicality of um like having i guess the 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 relationship and bond, and building that bond together like how much of it is something that was presented to us when we were children of like this is what love is and who knows what that is and then how much of that is really um the bond that that we can move move towards you know, as I said, I'm not I'm not really sure at this point in time um, because you know there's ideas there's the ideal and everybody wants to pursue the ideal, but I don't know too many people mm. that actually have that opportunity to pursue the ideal because there's just too many distractions. Uh, there, 
there are too many wounded souls. You know, um, just based solely on my looks, I'm not trusted. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, my first day on campus at Michigan State, I'm meeting girls. I'm like, hi, I'm Walter. You know, I'd like your number. No, no, Walter, I'm not going to give you my number because I know you got five girlfriends. I'm not going to give you a thing. But do you think, uh, like, I guess now it's like I'm, I'm being philosophical here. Do you think by even having that idea in your mind, you're projecting that into existence? Like, you're bringing to life the idea of what you believe. No. No, I mean, no, absolutely not. No, no, so this is this is a super interesting conversation. We're going to have to do some more podcasts just on love because now I've got like a thousand questions, oh, Walter, continue, happening right continue. now. And um, so first of all, if we, if we really think about and talk about this myth that exists around the notion of love, that's what gets us in trouble right from the, the start, that we have this notion of what love is supposed to look yeah. like, what it's supposed to be, how it's supposed to smell, what kind of songs come in your head. And so we, in essence, set ourselves up. And then on top of that, we have the experiences that, the lived experiences that the individuals come to the table with, come to the relationship with, that they can't fully get over because they can't let go of the myth. And so when you have that dynamic and then let's just throw discrimination and racism and all the isms and everything else on top of that, just under the auspices of surviving. It's hard to really even think about the romance of black love. And I'm, I'm really curious about black love in particular, because I think that, that, that our love is even more complicated. I mean, there, there's just a lot of dynamics that, that, that we had to get through to get to this moment that we're currently in. And some of the, the trauma, the historical trauma, uh, hasn't gone away. It, and, and there you go. You know, the, the trauma associated with past experiences is, is something that a lot of people just don't overcome. And, and what do you do about that? Um, I, don't, I don't know how to fix it. I don't, I don't know if there is a fix. Is there black love? So let, maybe I should back that thing all the way up. Is there such a thing? Well, black love exists, but I think a lot of a lot of the best experiences you have are familial. Okay, it's, it's among your family, and but that doesn't necessarily translate into romantic love. Okay, uh, the same love that you have for your family and friends is not the same love that you have for your lover because you know there's a whole different dynamic going on okay there's a whole different set of circumstances there's a whole different set of pressures you know so you know it's pretty easy for me to write about it but you know (laughs) living and writing (laughs) well you know and and i'm and and let me say i'm you know i don't want to get in trouble and i really could right now because you know i'm around a lot of writers and you know i know romance writers and you know i know poets and and actually i prefer poets because you know they're they're kind of in this kind of idyllic state and they're constantly looking for love and they make the best partners (laughs) You know, uh, romance writers kind of put it all on paper, and then that's where it is. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, uh, and I'm going to get in trouble for that one, okay? (laughs) Well, your secret is safe with us and all of our listeners. (laughs) So Zane Zane is putting it out there. (laughs) So, you know. Maybe fluent. You know, I write write erotica, and, and, you know, my erotica is 
is pretty graphic, you know, and so uh, because that's what's real to me, you know, sex and sexuality is real, mm -hmm. you know, because you don't you don't have to be in love to be in lust. I, I tell people that I I I write about lust, sex, and self fulfillment. Okay, because I think th these are the things that people are really, really trying to achieve. Okay, but if you just only are looking for self fulfillment, it's funny because like part of the self fulfillment, like especially with sex, is because it involves another partner. It naturally has you have to disconnect from yourself to make it an experience worth having. Yeah, but from what, you know, from what I see in social media, I'm not sure that that there's a lot of mutual gratification going on. But if it's not mutual, then it it, it takes away the substantive of the act itself. Indeed. Right. I mean, but it, it sounds good on paper, but I okay, just, yeah, you know, I just don't believe that that a lot of people are finding that type of feel, fulfillment, and that's based on you know I'm I'm always on social media and and you know I'm always talking with people about relationships. You know I'm very mm -hmm. interested in relationships. I have been for a very long time. I've been involved in relationships since I was a teenager, and so I still don't have a real good feel for this thing that you know that that folks talk about on TV or even what is promoted in the media I think I think some very unrealistic notions are promoted in media mm -hmm. about what love is or what love should be or what it looks like and what it smells like and what it tastes like mm -hmm. you know because I haven't had those those personal experiences and mm -hmm. I find you know that, that sometimes uh, folks are very threatened when the closer you get to those ideals, mm -hmm. okay? And, and I've, I've, I've been in situations where, where folks will actively sabotage a relationship the closer they get to that ideal. Mm -hmm. And I'm not really sure why that happens. You know, if, if, you, if you spent your whole life wanting a certain thing and then the closer you get to it, you know, it's like approach avoidance. And, and I'm not sure why that happens. Nah, nah you don't think, uh, like, I guess the flip side of this is, I'm one to also believe that it's, <clears throat> and this may be idealism in me, but the response and, and what I pull from the people around me, uh, my accountability is like, because um, I felt a lot of what you're saying, like, I, I, I felt that at times, but then upon looking back at it, I think to myself, like it was certain things that I did that brought about certain responses that would make me feel this way in the first place. And even the emotion of feeling as though uh, someone else is being standoffish towards me is still an emotion within myself. It could be real. It could not be real. It's, it's the emotion I have. So I, I guess um, this is a talk I had with Karima that, that runs Le Petit Zinc. So it's deep, but okay. In meeting our emotional needs, because even the whole concept of the lustful fulfillment or love fulfillment is matching the emotional needs together. But in meeting that, if we're if we're aware and present with where our emotions are, you don't believe that maybe our own responses bring about some of what you just said, like the the the. Like our own responses will bring about 
the standoffish nature from a, a potential mate or a partner that we're with or somebody we're engaging with. Like we're bringing to life our our fears and our expectations because we're not allowing ourselves the vulnerability to truly experience something that we're I'm familiar with. Well, you know, we're we're a generation apart. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh you know, when when I was a young man, there was a a much different kind of emphasis going on about romance and you know, there were there were more uh there were more nuclear families. Mm-hmm. There were more married couples. You know, now what is it like uh, black women are like maybe 60, 60, 70 percent of black women aren't married. I thought, I thought it was higher than that. Yeah, it seems like it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I, well, I, you know, I didn't want to say a ridiculous number, but I but it's it's very high. Right. You know, uh, you know, I told you I grew up in Conant Gardens. It was unusual when a female dominated household moved into the neighborhood it was, it was that's how rare it was because just about everybody else, everybody else had a mom mm-hmm. and dad at home you don't mm-hmm. see that anymore and then then you have you know the creation of hip hop you know i mentioned mm-hmm. that you know because that happened like in the late 80s mm-hmm. and you know there's a whole different emphasis on what relationships can be as opposed to what I grew up, you know, like, you know, when you were talking, I was, I immediately started thinking about uh, Jay-Z and Beyonce, mm-hmm. you know, where they just kind of put all their business out. You know, she would be the type of woman that I would run home to every night, but, you know, he's admitted that he's had little tryst mm-hmm. and it's kind of socially acceptable. But I would argue also at a, in those older generations, just due to, uh, the the lack of rights for women it was a lot of women that were staying in situations like even in my my own family like like divorce was one of those weird things and 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 domestic violence like a lot of the the balance in a household uh some of those households in the 40s 30s and 50s were not as uh sanctimonious and you know it wasn't lever to beaver in a lot of those households I, I give this example uh i remember as a kid watching i love lucy and ricky would be smacking lucy on tv like when she would like you know overcook the pie and then the laugh track would come in like oh this is something you laugh at whereas i mean that would never happen in popular culture today but a lot of this uh the idea of big mama and, and, and grandpa had this great relationship is is romanticized as well like mm-hmm. it wasn't a, uh, a, 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 a society was different. The temperature was different. So many women didn't even have access to work. Um, so I, I just, I, I maybe this, like I say, I, I think it may be my idealism, but it's matching those emotional needs and knowing if we can build something together. And I feel like my own, as you would say, like I guess baggage or my own experiences, my own fears sometimes keep me from recognizing and embracing the 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 beauty of the situation and more so i'm guarded for saying like okay when is the other shoe gonna drop are are you you married no No. ever been married no Mm -mm. okay i've you know i've been married okay um and you know i was you know i was that guy that oprah talked about on tv you know i paid all the bills i took care of home i came home at night 
mm-hmm. uh, gave up all of my extracurricular activities, and it wasn't enough. It just simply wasn't enough because I was with an individual that had been so damaged by past experiences that it was impossible for her to really believe that, you know, I finally got somebody who trusted me enough mm-hmm. to, you know, like when I, like I said, when I was younger, folks wouldn't even approach me because like, oh no, I, got, I know you got five girlfriends, I'm not gonna do anything for you. And then, you know, like my, my nerdy roommate, you know, the, the, you know the, the stereotypical nerd, uh, you know, of nowadays, you know, with the glasses and look too academic, he had three girlfriends because no one suspected Shout out to Raj. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. You said Raj. Really Raj. went way back there. Nice. But yeah, well, that's... that's, that's he, or I guess Urkel is more, a little have, more... Have you, seen, uh, have you seen the Netflix version of Dear White People? I have yeah, 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 yeah. He, he looked yeah. like... Everybody hates Chris character. He, yeah, he yeah, looked yeah, like yeah. that guy. <laughs> and, and he had three girlfriends all over campus. Because nobody suspected that he would be the guy to have three girlfriends. Mm, but, but as a guy that's had, I guess, I don't know if they were girlfriends, but interactions with multiple women, I still wasn't fulfilled. I still was pursuing, uh, like, the, the substantive value of, like... The, the, the like, something that was more sincere. The, the superficialities I me wanting to have more than one partner. But that's why, that's why I said it's generational because, see, I was quite content with sitting at home with my old lady. Mm-hmm. And she, was, she didn't believe it, but I, you know, but, but, but I learned that from my parents. Mm-hmm. You know, because myself and my two brothers were the focal point of the family, irrespective of whatever else was mm-hmm. going on. You know, it, my father's philandering you know, uh, his abuse, we were still the center of the family. And you just don't, you know, there's no center anymore. You know, uh, grandma takes care of the children now, okay? Uh, Most families are separated. You know, father, you know, you have all this notion of of baby daddies and all that. That thing, that kind of thing didn't exist back in the day. You know, uh, they were there were nuclear families, and like I said, irrespective of anything else that was going on, abuse, uh, philandering, whatever, the kids were still the, the, the reason that the family existed, and, and you, you just don't find that anymore. There, there are children out here with, you know, uh, I, I meet women, they have three kids, they have three different fathers for mm-hmm. these children. Mm-hmm. And it's virtually impossible to walk into that situation and and take charge of it because, you know, if, if you want to uh, manage your household, you paying the bills, you want to manage your households, you say something to the kid, then you got to fight her, you know, you got to fight your, your woman and you got to fight the baby daddy. You know, and that didn't happen when I was growing up. And see, I would say that part of that philandering, part of the abuse is the 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 you know, that suppressed emotional psyche is still now coming to life in what we, you know, what I've even, I know, interpreted as like the trauma, the abuse, the, 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 the pushback, because it still exists. As they say, still, um, you know, alcoholism lives, you know, three generations into a family after. So I can only imagine what the abuse, what the philandering, what the conditioning of like you know the black experience 
and back to what you were saying, the black love experience has done to our community. Mm-hmm. Um, and that may be me glass half fooling, but. You know, I'm trying to really keep quiet because I feel like I'm in a privileged space and I'm just listening. Oh, no, and make, no, no, sure. no. I mean that sincerely because what I'm what I'm seeing and experiencing is two African-American men of different generations having a conversation about love and relationships. And wow. I mean, again, I think we're going to need to circle back and have some more planning around that. It's it's interesting as I'm listening as a black woman and I'm thinking. All my sister friends that I know are these amazing women that manage if they, you know, whatever pain might have occurred from a previous relationship, they are these kind of self-aware, centered sisters that are looking for, looking for love, right? Looking for love, looking for relationships, looking for kind of a commitment that is meaningful and not superficial. And I mean, these are women that are, are independent and, and um, certainly aren't coming to the table saying, listen, I need you to take care of me and feed my babies and, my, and, and, and deal with my baby daddies. None of that. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I don't even know these women you're talking about. I, I know some, but you know. <laughs> but I'm just saying, it just, it just, how come we can't get this fit to work better so <laughs> that those sisters can connect with, with, with brothers that really want to make but that goes Make back to, to what you asked me at the start of this. You know, uh, I haven't figured that out yet because, and I've been trying, okay? I've been trying to find that, that perfect mix, okay? Uh, I don't have any children. Uh, and at, at, I was out at the club with, with me and four, of, uh, four or five of my partners. And, you know, we grew up in a neighborhood, like I said, everybody had a father, um, you know, and he was the head of the household and they took care of us. And... We just didn't go out here and, and have kids to prove our manhood because we knew that there were certain responsibilities that came along with that. You know, if you're gonna have a child, you're gonna raise a child. You know, and and up to a point, I didn't meet a woman that I really thought that would take care of my children the way I saw my mother take care of us. So I didn't have one. But you know, I meet women. They're like, "Well, you don't have any kids. Well, what's wrong with you?" You know, you, you, you wow. know what? I was at a club one time. One was like, "Oh, y'all, y'all must be shooting blanks," because we didn't have kids. And I'm like, "Well, how about we just responsible men?" And then they look at me like, "Oh, that couldn't be it." But that was that was what it was. You might want to try a church next time. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say. I already hear the woman saying, "Like in the club, yeah." <laughs> and I'm just, I'm kind of sort of joking. I, I know you are. I'm just. <laughs> Kind of I, I know you are, but but I mean you gotta meet people where where, where they are. But the consciousness, but yeah, I, and, and I don't have any children, and a lot of that is many a reasons. But part of like how I see uh, being raised, uh, it's a lot of stuff. This was a deeper discussion than I expected on philosophy. I thought we were just gonna be talking about writing and storytelling and building protagonists and and, and, and setting up um, setting up plots and stuff. I hadn't even got to my questions about storytelling. I guess we'll have to do that in time. We're going to have to get a, uh, you know, get an update. We may bring Walter in like every, every eight months and say, have you found black love? Is black love existence? Have you figured it out? (laughs) (laughs) Like Waldo. (laughs) No, and I'm, I'm still trying, you know, the, this, uh, my most recent creation uh, was loosely based on, 
you know, some experiences that I, you know, I've worked in offices for 30 years and, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, it's, it's a female dominated situation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's, you know, the new guy comes into the, into the environment and, you know, there's, there's a lot of competition for this man. Okay. So I wrote a story about a woman who was, you know, looking for love and she meets this man and, you know, and, and he's all the women's dream but she ends up with this man and achieving what she wanted out of the relationship. And it's, you know, in, in my mind it's fiction because I don't see that in the real world. You know, what I, what I see a lot of times is, you know, you come into a new environment and, and folks are pushing up on you. Some men take advantage. You know, there's, you know, there's a general rule that I learned very early that, you know, you don't, you don't crap where you live. But some people don't believe in that. You know they'll, they'll. Oh, men have never believed in that. <laughs> but, but, but you know, JFK. <laughs> it, it doesn't work out for you, though. It it doesn't work. It doesn't. It never. I've never seen it work in your favor. <laughs> right. And look at him now. You know, it it, hey. it doesn't. It doesn't work out. Donald for you. Trump. <laughs> you know how many people are leaving their jobs now and their lives have been ruined because of their indiscretions. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. but like I said, again, it's generational because, you know, we were told when you, we were young that that was not the type of thing that you did. Oh, well, that, and, that generation of me and I think set the standard at like um, really so many things in my lifetime in a younger generation. Like I remember I remember the whole Clarence Thomas uh, Anita Hill trial like as a child I remember that moment. I remember Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky as a child like. Is certain things I remember the O.J. Simpson trial, like these different things that set precedent for uh, for sexual harassment, um, for domestic violence, uh, for and right now even with Bill Cosby's case, uh, setting a precedent with uh, with abuse uh, and rape, sexual assault. Like it's certain things that just stood out where like where now laws have moved forward and things have progressed, but. Just knowing the nature of a lot of men that I know, I, I still don't think that we've ever subscribed to these ideals of uh, of 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 honoring and respecting women. I think that the whole concepts of honoring and respecting women are built under the paradigm of seeing women as objects. So it's almost like respect the woman the way I respect my dog or like my lawn or something. It's never like respect her as an individual. Um, and, and that's the tragedy even of this whole, uh, Bill Cosby situation as he was not only a, uh, a glaring, uh, uh, like I guess fictional character as Cliff Huxtable of like the way a man should carry himself. He, he, he would speak about the way men, she carry themselves sure, sure. and very opinionated about it and, and, but all during this ideal the 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 personal accountability for his own actions which i think was probably closer to the hugh hefner's and the and a lot of the other men you know jerry buss from the lakers and a lot of other men as well uh never never came into play in his mind because it's back to the objectification and seeing women as objects instead of individuals well, but again, you know, I, I told you about my background. You know, um, I worked in a very structured environment, mm-hmm. you know, professionally. I grew up in a very structured environment. 
-hmm. where those things just could not happen. You know, and, and being one of a kind, you know, people were scrutinizing my every activity. I didn't have the luxury of being a lech. I didn't have the luxury of, of being promiscuous. I didn't have the luxury of even raising my voice uh, using vulgarity. Those things just didn't happen in state service back in the day. We're talking about, you know, like the late 70s, early 80s. And I would say that Clarence Thomas's ascension to become a Supreme Court justice was around the same time. What you did, you conducted yourself with a standard that he never did, but he obviously but, but everybody, was uh, doing a whole nother get down. But everybody you mention is famous. And but they, he was and, not famous at the time. Like oh, you oh, don't, sure, but oh, sure he was to get at no. to get at the level of Supreme Court judge candidate. Uh -huh. There's a, there's a you know I mean you know lawyers you know there's a hierarchy. He so, was at the level of, okay. of here's here's a man. He could have been cherry picked. Here's a man that I can give you uh, rest in peace, a Northwestern graduate that I know historically, uh, uh, Clyde Cleveland and everything that he went through. Uh, uh, Clyde Cleveland. Uh, some of the transgressions of Alonzo Bates, uh, like it's like the 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 okay, uh, Mayor Kilpatrick's father, Bernard Kilpatrick, and even the whole thing that went down between uh, Bernard and Carolyn at the time, you know, like uh, the 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 you chose a higher standard. But, but that's not the. It's kind of like the the again, the, the one cop that's not a rate that that's not police brutality. But it's still, I would say, a prevalent nature of, um, you know, um, of sexual harassment. But of, again, you're talking about people in power in powerful positions. I'm not talking about. I'm talking about Joe Blow. Yeah, but that behavior, I believe, completely did not start once they became. Yeah. powerful that that's behavior that that perhaps informed the trajectory to their power well from from my perspective i look at what motivates somebody to want power to want influence and and i say it's because you know um you know i'm a victim of my upbringing you know i read i read a lot of carlos castaneda i don't know if you're familiar with him but but he talks about personal power and if you lack personal power, then you do things to achieve personal power. You do it through uh, accumulation of wealth and influence. And maybe they didn't have any of that when they were a child. I told you, I was one of the guys that didn't have to cross the street. Okay? So I led a very different life than, yeah. than these men. Yeah. So I don't, you know, that's why I don't, I don't understand what they're doing because I was always no. comfortable with where I was and, and I have a lot of friends that are like that, mm -hmm. okay? And, and they're not abusive in the ways that I'm seeing these men being abusive. You know, I was having a discussion with a friend of mine about Cosby the other day. I mean, who drugs women to have their way with them? Somebody who is really insecure about yes. their abilities. I agree, but I also think that a culture existed where it was so many other men that echoed that behavior right. well, that I mean, made that aids and abets it. Now, what you're saying is, I'm just saying that I don't think that it's generate like I've seen just even through time, just the objectification of women is so prevalent that I don't know. Like for every example of today, I can give glaring examples of 
But but again, there's you know, there's there's a couple of different kind of men running around here. Like like I, I mentioned before, okay, there was yeah. a guy that you had to cross the street. There was a guy that didn't have to cross the street, and there was a guy that crossed the street. We're talking about guys who had to cross the street. I know, and a lot of those guys <laughs> definitely are exploiting, um, um, are are exploiting their their positions of influence and and, and terrorizing the lives of a lot of women. Well, you know, there, you know, that brought to mind, you know, Rudy Ray Moore used to talk, used, he coined a term called Dolomite. Insecure, <laughs> insecure Momo Momo. Okay. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of those now. They're, mm-hmm. they're far more prevalent today than confident men. I, I feel like that, that confident men who really took care of business back in the day and had a little swag are becoming dinosaurs. Okay. But what you have, you know, because what's, What's what's the prototype for the man when you go into social media? You know, he's the nerdy guy who's making lots and lots of money. Mm. Okay, but behind closed doors, he's a lech. Okay, he's an abuser because of all those insecurities that he grew up with, and that's a real thing. You know, it's like it's not like you know even today, kids that everybody gets everybody gets a trophy, whether you're a winner or not. Mm. Back in the day, you had to be a winner. Okay. You had to have some swag. Nowadays, all you got to do is show up. And so what does that say to people? And what does that do to their self-esteem? It, it helps some of the losers that it could. It, it's, it's like, I would say it's such a case by case. Like Northwestern was great for me. But Northwestern is a horrible school for certain people, depending upon uh, your disposition. So everybody getting a trophy impacts Certain people were like, yeah, it, it could go far. That's hilarious. To and, me. And, and, and everybody not getting a trophy impacts people in a whole other way. That's but hilarious we could, to me. Man, we, yeah. I wanna, we definitely going to have to pick up this discussion. Yeah. How, do people, um, how do people get in contact uh, to get your book? How do people connect? Is your book on Amazon? Where, yeah, where do we get it? it? It's on Amazon. It's, it's called The Trouble with Harry Goodman. And my street name is J. Paul Ghetto. You know, when I was... Uh, when I was a young man, I used to give uh, concerts and and uh, Friday Friday midday parties back in in East Lansing, and I called myself J. Paul Ghetto after J. Paul Getty, hmm. you know, because I aspired to be a wealthy man. Uh, so I'm J. Paul Ghetto. You can mm-hmm. Google me, and I and I I should show up in top ten searches. Uh, my book's available on Amazon, The Trouble with Harry Goodman. It's, it's actually about uh, a psychologist, you know, a 40-something psychologist, you know, with a great education, and things just kind of go awry. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Cliffhanger. Nice. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Walter. Awesome. Oh, oh, this was great. This was really great. It was thank wonderful you. talking with you. Yeah, we'll be bringing him back. Oh, most definitely. <laughs> All right. Peace be. Black Coffee is a podcast hosted by Kari Frazier and Frida Sampson Weekly. Weekly, Frida and Kari welcome guests to discuss the rich history of Black leadership, entrepreneurship, artistry, and social justice. Black Coffee is recorded before a live audience every Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern at Pause, located at 736 Luthrope, Detroit, Michigan, 48202. Subscribe on Apple iTunes or Google Play to the Black Coffee Podcast and don't miss the history of Black Detroit.